Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Given the strange and turbulent times that we are living through, Kurt and I decided to reach out to some of our favorite behavioral science researchers and practitioners to get their take on the novel coronavirus pandemic that is shaking the world. These special edition episodes will explore a variety of different aspects of the crisis and our response to each of those aspects through a behavioral lens. We know that you may feel overwhelmed by the crisis already. It seems every news story, every social media thread, every phone conversation that we have is focused on some aspect of the pandemic right now. While the news and updated information are essential, we're going to take a different tact. We want to try to understand the science behind our reactions and our behaviors and how science can help us cope and move beyond the current crisis. In each episode, we talk with a different behavioral science expert and get their best thinking on an aspect of the crisis. So sit back, take a deep breath, and listen to our special series on behavioral science and the coronavirus pandemic. Claire Bidwell-Smith is a licensed therapist specializing in grief and the author of now three books of nonfiction, most currently Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, and a variety of other publications. She received her master's degree in clinical psychology from Antioch University and has a therapy practice in Los Angeles while also working with clients around the globe. Claire, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks for having me. Very excited to have you. <laughs> we are. We are. Um, could we could we start just by giving us a little bit of overview of anxiety, the missing stage of grief? Sure. This is my third book about grief and loss. I have been writing about grief and loss um, all of my adult life. I lost both of my parents at a young age, which is kind of what catapulted me into this this field. Um, and. I worked in hospice initially and then in private practice for a long time. And one of the things I was seeing in my clients that I had experienced personally when I was younger as well was anxiety following a significant loss. And it was something that I wasn't seeing talked about anywhere else, nowhere in the clinical world, nowhere in the grief world. Um, But I was seeing people go through very big spikes in anxiety after they left when they loved. And so it was something I wanted to start talking about. Initially, I started writing articles about it online. Um, and it drove all these clients to my office. <clears throat> and I started to then really work with a population of people who were feeling anxious after a loss and was able to kind of really get my hands around it, understand it. And that's where this book came from. <clears throat> How do you frame a loss? Uh, is it, are you primarily, you're primarily focused on the loss of relationships of people mm-hmm. uh, specifically, but does it also expand to, uh, into loss of relationships, uh, romantic relationships or friendships or loss of job or, uh, absolutely. We loss can, of um, dreams, aspirations. I mean, can it go that far? Absolutely. Divorce, um, loss of a pet, loss of a friendship, um, moving, all kinds of things can fall under the heading of grief and loss. Um, not all of them cause anxiety, but many of them do. Um, sometimes grief can be different when we are going through a life transition, such as a divorce or a job, because some of the aspects of that are replaceable. We can get into a new relationship. We can, um, you know, get remarried or, you know, make a new home for ourselves if we move. Whereas when we lose a person, um, a parent, a spouse, a child, those are irreplaceable losses. So that's the kind of loss that stays with you throughout your life and has some different ramifications. However, they all are forms of grief and loss. Given the world today mm-hmm. and the situation with COVID-19, it seems like the entire world is 
grieving to a certain degree about many of the things that they've lost and there is this heightened anxiety across the board how how can people take uh that and and cope with the anxiety and cope with some of the grief that is happening what are some suggestions that you might have well, I think we first have to really recognize that we are all grieving right now. Um, even if you haven't lost someone directly in this time period, you're grieving the change that is happening in our world. You're grieving the life you were living a couple of months ago. You may be grieving a job you've lost. Um, you might be grieving your children being home from school or missing graduations or all kinds of things. There's a lot of grief that we're feeling. And then we're feeling this collective grief for the numbers we're seeing on the television every night. Um, and then we all are starting to maybe know somebody who has died or somebody who's lost someone. So there are many, many layers of grief right now. And I think that we have to recognize that. I think sometimes people feel like they don't have permission to grieve um, because they're not grieving something really big or they haven't directly lost someone, yet they're feeling the effects of the grief and trying to pretend like it's not happening to them. Oh, I was just going to ask about that permission to grieve. What, uh, how, how does that manifest itself? Well, I think when we don't give ourselves permission to grieve, which means letting ourselves feel all the big emotions that are coming up with these losses, then we start to try to tamp them away. And then they manifest in things like anger, guilt, anxiety, um, you know, relationship problems, uh, substance abuse, because we're trying to ignore these big feelings. And when we do that, they always kind of burble up in the wrong places. And then we've got the anxiety that's also happening in addition to the grief. And you know, anxiety is fear of something real or imagined. That's the definition of anxiety. And right now we have something both real and to be imagined that we're anxious about. We have this very real threat of the virus that is taking over globally, um, but there's a lot of aspects of it that we don't know about. There's things that we don't know how long it's gonna go on for, how many lives it will take, how we are going to treat it or end it. So there's a lot of imagined fear that comes with the real fear. And then there's just the the basic uncertainty. You know, we're waking up every morning back into this uncertain world. It's like Groundhog Day over and over. Here we are again today, <laughs> day fifty whatever of the quarantine, and and it's that it's that sea of uncertainty that we're sitting in that is just you know ripe for anxiety. That's what causes anxiety. So what can people do? What what can we do in order to reduce some of that anxiety that we're feeling? There's a lot of things we can do. Um, I think that just really starting to limit some of the information intake that we have is very important. You know, we wake up in the morning and often we look at our phones before we are even out of bed. And the amount of information you can download into your brain in 10 seconds of scrolling through your screens is, is too much. You know, you can get yourself into an anxious state before you, you have pushed back the covers. And so... That doesn't sound familiar at all. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about there. <laughs> Tim. Like basic practices to limit our information download. Um, because what happens is we, we take in so much information and not even realizing the anxiety levels that are increasing as we're taking in that information. So being careful about that, um, asking for support, leaning on friends and family that we know can hold us steady when we do feel that anxiety kind of ratcheting up. Um, meditation, I know for some people it makes their skin crawl to hear that word, but it is the number one most healing thing that you can do for anxiety. We are anxious because we're focusing on thoughts that are causing us fear-based reactions. When we can take steps back from those thoughts, when we can learn how to not follow those thoughts down rabbit holes, then we can reduce our anxiety. Meditation is the way to do that. 
God, I want to I want to come back to meditation, but this this thing has been kind of crawling through my head. When you brought up all the different uh, stakeholders that are being impacted, you mentioned kids, and uh, this is I, I I feel like this might be under um, under promoted or under talked about, undervalued is the impact on on kids. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. They are definitely feeling the effects of it. Um, I think in some ways they can seem more resilient than we are because as adults, we get kind of stuck in our routines and our things and kids are kind of used to adapting to all kinds of new scenarios as they grow and mature. So in some ways it's okay. The younger kids I, I've been hearing from various psychologists are faring a little better because they actually really like to be at home with their families more than anything right now at that age. However, as they start to get older, 12 and up, they're naturally in a place where they want, they're supposed to be around their peers. They're supposed to be out in the world. They're supposed to be really taking um, in information, learning new experiences, and now they're home with their parents. So that's a struggle. Um, I think they're all seeing their parents struggling and sometimes anxious, which is, which is, can be frightening for them. And I think the main thing that we need to do with the kids is constantly be open to talking about it. You know, if they want to talk about it, not to shut it down, even if you don't have answers for them, at least providing space to talk about these things. When we shut them down, then it gives them the message that they shouldn't feel what they're feeling or they shouldn't wonder about what they're thinking about. Um, when we provide space, even when we say, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know the answer to that. It helps them feel more comfortable just expressing their thoughts and feelings. So uh, as listeners of this podcast know, I have a 14-year-old and a 10-year-old, mm. uh, and I will I, I use this podcast to get uh, parenting advice, <laughs> and, and so uh, I'm going to do that right now. Uh, so with my 14-year-old, you, you talked about opening up and listening, but you know, what if they don't open up? What if they are literally going into their room and getting on their computer and playing games with their friends and then you go in and try to talk to them uh, and it's like they shrug their shoulders and don't do anything. Are there, are there ways to get them to open up about this? Or if they're not opening up, should we just be okay with that and say, all right, you open up when you want to and, and just leave it be? I think it's a combination of both. I think you going in, even if he doesn't open up as a boy. Yes, the 14 year old is a boy. Even if he doesn't open up, just you going in and offering that space, you know, just saying I'm here if you do want to talk means so much more than you realize. Um, and so continuing to do that, do it over and over, you know, not every second, but, you know, do it every few days. Hey, how are you doing? Do you want to talk about anything? Um, and even if even if he says no, it's it just gives him that message that you're there and that you are available. And then sometimes when they don't want to open up, maybe you share something. You know, I do that with my kids. When they don't want to open up, they'll they'll pretend like they're fine and they have nothing to talk about. And I'll be like, you know, I'm having an anxious day. I had a weird dream last night. Or I'm feeling a little sad. I miss your school. I miss this. And so just modeling for them what it, what it looks like to open up, what the kinds of things you can say are. Um, how, how does that go? <laughs> I'm really I'm curious. Sometimes there's some eye rolling or sometimes it's exactly the trick where they're like, yeah, you know what? I miss that too. Or it can start the, the conversation. I think sometimes we put a lot of pressure on them and they feel like they're in a fishbowl and we're just peering in waiting for them to open up. And so if we do it first, it helps. Yeah. I think, I think that's really good advice. So thank yeah. you. I will <laughs> take that and be doing lots of that in the coming weeks and months. 
I wanted to see what Kurt might have to ask about meditation because Kurt is a big meditator. And when you okay. brought up meditation, that really, um, that, that, that just kind of hit a, hit a light bulb for me. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. So with meditation and, you know, mindfulness type work, uh, you mentioned it's about that calming of those thoughts and, and mm-hmm. mind. So help, help our listeners understand when you're talking about meditation and, and reducing anxiety, why it actually works. Yeah. I think meditation sounds really intimidating to some people. It sounds hard or it sounds woo woo. Um, and it's the truth is that it really is one of the number one ways to calm anxiety and to reduce anxious thoughts. The goal doesn't have to be, you know, this nirvana state where you're sitting on a mountain and, you know, in Tibet um, and you've achieved this, this perfect space. Um, the goal is really to understand how our thoughts work. You know, we wake up in the morning and even if we're not looking at our phones, we still open our eyes and there's this like ticker tape across the bottom of the screen on TV. And it's like all the thoughts right there when you wake up. Oh my God, it's Tuesday. I have to go to the store. I have this meeting today. I've got to do that. Oh, I'm going to fight with so-and-so. All these things kind of pop up and we follow the, all those thoughts down rabbit holes. And sometimes they lead to anxious places, sometimes sad places. Sometimes they lead to behaviors. Um, and so when we learn how to take a little step back and notice the thoughts, and start to say, oh, I see that thought. I don't need to follow it down the rabbit hole or I don't need to react to it. I'm gonna let that one go and continue moving on. Um, it can reduce you know, maladaptive behaviors. It can reduce anxiety, reduce stress. Uh, and meditation's the way to do that. Meditation, the simple act of sitting down, getting quiet, starting to pay attention to your breath and noticing your thoughts um, is, is the way to really start to do that work. And it's not that hard. And these days, there's so many amazing apps. You know, I think meditation can be difficult in the beginning, and it can be difficult to do on your own. So if you're new to it, I always recommend taking advantage of all these great apps that are out there that can help you get started. Yeah, I've been doing it for a number of years now. And I still have not gotten the Nirvana effect, and, and it's still hard for me. Yeah. But oh, I don't does. know. Sometimes you act like you're on top of a mountain, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the meditation part. Too. That's just a whole separate thing about me and my personality. No, but um, but it is hard. It is yeah. this aspect of I, I feel like I should be getting a lot better and I realize my, my thoughts still wander, but it's the noticing part. And that's the part yeah. that I have to really continually remind myself is that you're noticing when you're wondering more, mm-hmm. which is what we don't tend to do. And, and it helps even as we're, when you're not meditating, when you're just in everyday right. life exactly. and all of a sudden you're going, oh wait, I was following that trend down here. Just stop, take a mm-hmm. moment, take a breath, okay do I want to go there or do I not want to go there? And that, exactly. that I think is really the helpful part for me, but it is still hard. <laughs> it's a practice, you know, it's definitely a practice that we have to return to and it, and it can be difficult, but it's also so rewarding. And I think the rewards come very quickly when you start to do that practice, even as difficult as it can be. Um, so I, I really recommend it. I've had so many clients start meditation practices to great success. Yeah. I want to go back. You had mentioned a piece of, this is about guilt, or, you know, feeling guilty in some things. And I just, I know there's been a few people that I've talked to really recently who have expressed guilt because they, uh, you know, are doing really well in their job. They, they actually, you know, people got laid off and other people's, you know, times were decreased and they got, mm-hmm. you know, more responsibility and they're having really fun because it's challenging and it's new. And yet they're, 
like giddy about work, but they feel guilty at the mm-hmm. same time. And I think there's lots of people in various different situations like that. Are, are you seeing that same thing? And what do people, what kind of words do you tell people who may be feeling that guilt? Yeah, guilt's such an interesting concept. It, it, it seems to go hand in hand with grief. So I've seen it a lot in the grief world. Um, but I'm also seeing it now too, people that are thriving in this, these circumstances or that have a lot of resources and are able to perhaps like go to a country home or whatever it is that they have. Um, and they're feeling some guilt over that. I always say two things can be true at once. You know, you can be feel really grateful for your circumstances and you can also still be feeling very sympathetic and mourning collectively for the world. You don't have to just pick one. Even if you're doing really well, you don't have to just be gloating in that space. You can be really feeling compassionate for what other people are going through and being appreciative of what you have. Wow, that that that's pretty terrific. It makes me think of, of some of the... the the things that we have in our lives that we're not having right now, concerts uh, from mm-hmm. favorite musicians, uh, sporting events, uh, maybe maybe buying a car. You know, there's a bunch of things that, that we would do on an infrequent basis that we're just kind of having to sacrifice that we're probably okay with. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's some things that happen on an infrequent basis that are that's not so cool. Uh, weddings and baby showers and uh, birthday parties and things like that. There's a grief in losing out on them, isn't there? Absolutely. Um, And uh, along with those, we're not able to have funerals right now or sit Shiva Mm -hmm. or have wakes or memorials. And that's a really big thing that's going on. Um, There is the grief over some of the really pleasant things that we're missing out on. But then there's also this complication of the fact that we're losing people all around the world and we're not able to you you know, do our usual customs in in order to honor those people and honor our families and the losses we're going through. So there's many layers of that. And I think just as we're getting creative with virtual birthday parties and Zoom cocktail hours and um, virtual graduations, we're also getting very, very creative with virtual funerals and virtual wakes. And I think, um, you know, we're social creatures as humans and we really, it's important to us to come together to ritualize, um, celebrate, honor, and I think we need to do it just as much uh, in the wake of grief as we do in in celebratory uh, moments. My my mother-in-law had passed away a year ago, two days ago. Mm. And so we got together uh, via Zoom with yeah. uh, our entire family. Yeah. And, and we were, again, we were fortunate, that, not that my mother-in-law passed away, but that it happened before this because it would be very, very difficult right. to go through that process in a, a time when you couldn't gather, when you couldn't have that ability to to give somebody a hug when you see them sad and grieving. Mm-hmm. And that is a very real reality right now for people. And, you know, even the, the idea of getting together and we, it was, it was actually really wonderful. We shared pictures and had, you know, an extended family that we probably mm. wouldn't have done normally, you know, in the year long celebration of, you know, her passing and kind of re- reflecting back on her life. But it was really nice because we did get a larger group, but we're still missing those personal connections yeah. and some of the intimacy and the touch yeah. and some of the other things that are going on with that. Um, yeah, I'm glad you did that, though. I mean, I think I think it's so much better than not doing it, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's where even more sadness and depression and anxiety come when we aren't able to really honor the people that we love. Um, so people are starting to have virtual funerals and memorials and gatherings. And 
I think that when we come through this and are on the other side, there will be a time where we kind of maybe have a collective outward mourning and grief process. And maybe we come together in some of those rituals that we weren't able to. But in the meantime, I think we have to find creative ways to do it even just a little bit. Yeah, you talked about ritual and it just makes me think about how uh, organized religions have been really good at developing rituals to help us through mm -hmm. these changes, birth, you know, maturity, death, things like that. And, and it feels like it's more than just a social norm. It feels like these are part of our DNA, that these things are deeply connected yeah. to us, right? It's true. And so I think right now people feel a little confused as to what they what to do, um, because we can't do the usual things that perhaps um, an, an organized religion has set up for us. But I say get creative. You know, even if you just light a candle at night by yourself in your house and you put up a photo of a person or you light a candle and say your own kind of prayer or meditation for the world at large, those things mean something. You know, we really as as humans, we like to ritualize and memorialize. And so I think we should honor that. One of the things you talk about is an anticipatory grief. Mm -hmm. Can you tell our listeners what that is? And then, um, you know, in this day and age, what, how do we, how do we handle that? Anticipatory grief is when we are kind of, grieving a loss that we know is coming. So we're already feeling some of the, the feelings of the loss before it happens. If any of you have had lost someone to an illness, you know, in the, in the time leading up to their, their passing that you're, you're already feeling some of that grief because you're recognizing that they're going to go. Um, and it's similar to regular grief. We have to honor it. We have to know what it is. Um, you don't really feel the full effects of it until afterwards, but I think in anticipatory grief, there's an added level of anxiety because you're waiting for this thing to happen that you know is inevitable and it's kind of hanging over you and looming. And that can be really difficult. Um, I think people are feeling it in somewhat an extent due to COVID right now. You know, it's again, we're just kind of suspended in this in this place of anticipation for how this is going to continue playing out. And it would be like, can you imagine how different things would feel if we had an end date? If it was like, hey, October 1st, this will be totally over. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, we could all just have a big sigh of relief and be like, oh, I can I can get through till October 1st. It would be completely different. But right now we're in this suspension of, of you know, not knowing. And, and I think that that can cause a lot of stress and anxiety to wake up to every day and hold on to. What if you had a crystal ball, what do you think things are going to look like on the other side of this? That's a really or, interesting question. Or maybe you do have a crystal ball. You <laughs> <laughs> shouldn't assume that you don't have one. Um, you know, I think we're seeing the best and worst of, of people, of infrastructures, of governments, of cultures right now. And, and that's not a bad thing. I think sometimes we have to break down in order to rebuild. And I do think we're going to see a lot of positive things. I think we're going, as this process continues to unfold, many cracks are going to be revealed. You know, all the cracks in the structure, the things that need to be fixed and replaced are, are, are being revealed every single day, whether that's in marriages, whether it's in school systems, medical settings, politics, you know, we're seeing it across the board. When there's giant stress on something, you see all the places where it needs to be fixed. So it's a really great opportunity. It's going to be a little uncomfortable for a while where we're like, wow, everything's a mess. Um, but then there's this amazing opportunity to start to change things and rebuild things. Um, and I think in terms of grief, you know, I've been in the grief world personally for 20 years, professionally for 10. I've never seen the whole world grieve at once. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's remarkable. And there's some beauty in it where I think we'll come out more compassionate, I hope, 
You know, I hope we come out with a new respect for grief and death and dying um, in ways that we've ignored in the past, much to our own detriment. So I think there's a lot to be optimistic about as we do come through this. And I just think there's so many opportunities for transformation. I'm hopeful as well. I'm maybe not anticipating that. I would, <laughs> maybe it's more of a, a wish than a mm -hmm. actual uh, forecast on my part. But I think there is some reality in this idea of seeing the entire world go through something as traumatic as this is mm -hmm. and seeing how we are all uh, it doesn't matter if you are in, we talked with people in India, we've talked to people in Iran, we've talked with people across Europe and throughout the United States, and we're all feeling the same mm -hmm. craziness, the same fear of the unknown, not understanding what's going to happen. Is this going to impact somebody I know? It's going to impact the economy, all of those factors that are coming into play. And hopefully that brings us closer together. Close, mm -hmm. Hopefully it, it helps us understand that humanity is is interconnected yeah. and we're not these them over there and us over here. If that on the other side of this, if that happens, I will <laughs> I will be giddy with with anticipation or with joy. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity for positive things and hopefully it will happen. Do you think uh, that music has a role to play in the grieving process. You talked about meditation and I think about what meditation does. Do you think that music might have a role to play in grieving as well? I think that's an interesting question. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that music is very evocative. Um, I think it can evoke a lot of memories, elicit a lot of feelings. I have certain clients who have trouble grieving, you know, they have trouble letting themselves open up to the deep feelings of grief sometimes. And one thing that I know really helps them is to sit and listen to music, whether it's just music that stirs them on an emotional level, or it's music that is tied to the person they lost. Um, it's always very evocative. So I think music can be great for that. Yeah, you think about funerals, and there's typically a musical component within those. And mm -hmm. I know for myself, uh, those are oftentimes where I try not to cry. Uh, and that's where the tears happen because mm -hmm. of the emotion that is brought forth by that music. So uh, Tim, I'm not an expert on this. You are, you're the music guy, right? But I, there's definitely a, a role to be played by by music, I think, in, in all parts of our, our lives and grieving, I think, would not be separated from that. One, one, one of my observations about funerals and music is how it is the exact opposite. It's 180 degrees from the way people approach music in uh, in weddings. Weddings, it's very, you know, we've got our favorite song. We've got this and it's always in the in a particular theme. Mm -hmm. But man, funerals, it can be anything. It could be my wild Irish rose or or Danny boy or, uh, you know, some people like celebratory songs or, you know, I, I played um, I played a Fleetwood Mac song at a, at a funeral one time you know, <laughs> because you know, the, the people who were playing the funeral just liked it. And it always just surprises me how it, it certainly gets back to what you were saying, Claire, yeah. emotional, evocative, this idea, but the, the themes are, are really not, there's nothing cohesive about them. It's really just more about this song means something to me. Right. And that's beautiful. Music can be so personal, you know, yeah. I think that that can be really sweet. One of the things that this, 
COVID-19 situation has brought forth for many people is that they are uh, alone. They are quarantining alone and by themselves. And so with that, is there a difference between grieving while you're alone versus myself, who I am here with my wife and two kids? And as much as I love them, you know, sometimes I like to be alone, but uh, I'm glad that I'm not at this point in time. Is mm-hmm. there a difference? There is. Um, it's a really interesting, it's it's twofold um, what I'm seeing. Before COVID, regular grief, we lose somebody you love. It's very lonely. It's very isolating on its own because you have just lost someone that you deeply love, one of the most important people to you. And you go out of your house every day and the whole world just seems to be going on no matter what. Everyone's still doing all their things. They're still going to graduations and celebrations and mowing the lawn and your world is crumbling. And it can feel just very lonely and strange when that when that's happening. Right now, the whole world is feeling it. And so if you've lost someone and you're grieving, you're less alone than you've ever been in terms of like the global experience, which is fascinating and kind of beautiful. Mm -hmm. However, you may also be completely alone in your apartment in Brooklyn or wherever you are, um, completely isolated by yourself. And that's really hard. You know, I have friends who are living in New York City alone and they haven't had a hug in six weeks, you know, or longer. Um, And that when you're grieving, that can feel very, very tough and just extra isolating and lonely. Um, but this idea that everybody kind of understands what you're going through is is really heartening. So um, while I think it is difficult to be isolated and in quarantine right now when you're grieving, it's, it's also this very strange connected time in grief that I think can help with that. Yeah, I think there's an interesting piece that you mentioned of that lack of touch, right? And various Mm -hmm. different pieces along that. I have a friend and she is isolating alone. And she put on a webinar the other day and she showed this picture of her back shoulder with a tattoo as part of that. And she said, this is the first I asked my building manager to take this picture and he had to, you know, lower the back shoulder down. And that was the first person to touch me in over five weeks. Mm. And she was it was, and she goes, you know, it's weird. It was just a brief little touch, but it it was very yeah. emotional for her. And so with that, I was not, it made me realize how lucky I am, um, mm-hmm. you know, able to get a hug from my kids. Well, my daughter, my, my son is too old for that now, um, <laughs> but, you know, and my wife and having those, those connections. Yeah. And for those people who don't have that at this point, I think that just has to add another whole layer onto this um, that just is something that we haven't had. I mean, even you mentioned people feeling alone because their world has crumbled prior to this, right? Mm-hmm. And you're going out and people are doing everyday things. But, you know, you would typically be able to get uh, a, a friend or an acquaintance and they would come up to you and give you a hug or yeah. or a, a hand on the back, whatever that would be. And yeah, that's absolutely. gone now. It really is. I, I know people who are also similar to the, to your friend. I had a friend who went recently for a COVID test and the doctor tipped her head back, you know, and ha- had his hand on the back of her head. And it was the first time she'd been touched in six weeks. And she felt so, it just, you know, it really affected her. Yeah. And I think we take that for granted and we don't realize how used to we are just going out in the world, you know, getting a hug here and there, touching people, interacting. 
Yeah. And I think it's what's going to make it difficult to continue quarantine and quarantining in many places all around the world. You know, I think that's why people are emerging, why people are fighting it. It's that that inner need to to be connected and to be with others. Um, so it's a very strange time. And I think the more that we can do to reach out, support people like that, let them know that we're thinking about them um, will be really important. Claire, do you think there are regional differences? As Kurt mentioned earlier, we've talked to people in Singapore and India and Iran and, of course, all over Europe and the United States. But but you uh, relatively recently moved from the West Coast to the East Coast of the United States. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering what your observation is along the lines of uh, regional differences, at least within at least within the United States. But are, are, are you seeing regional differences in the way people respond to the, the emotional challenges of this? crisis? Um, Yeah, I think somewhat. You know, I came from California to the Southeast, and it's very different. People here are a little more dismissive of some of the guidelines. They're not wearing masks. There's not as they're, they're socializing more. And then I have all my friends in California that I'm talking to who, you know, you try to go to a store in California without a mask on and you're escorted out. Um, whereas here I go to the store, there's, it's maybe 50, 50 wearing masks. Um, so there's some differences there. And, and, and sometimes I was talking to a neighbor recently as I was going, walking through the neighborhood and I just noticed the difference in kind of a lack of compassion about what people are going through. He was a little dismissive about what everyone's experiencing and how we're going to get through this soon. And I was thinking, there's some people having a really hard time right now. He was one of the people who is doing really well. His job is thriving. He's in a good place, but he wasn't seeming to really recognize um, the struggle that some people around the world are facing, whether it's isolation or job loss or health scares. Um, And I just feel very aware of those things all the time. Yeah. Is it coming back to bite them at at some point? I I, I don't mean to to say that, you know, it's, I guess it sounds like kind of a karma thing, you know, but but that wasn't really my intent originally, but just thinking about if they're pushing down the real, the real sense of community in the global sense, Mm -hmm. is it going to come back to bite them at some point? I don't know. I mean, I think we're going to have to see. I can't imagine that it wouldn't, but I don't know. You know, I, 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 I'm surprised that we are in some of the situations we're in politically in our country right now in general. So we're in places that I was surprised would ever happen. And, and so I don't know, you know, I would, I would like to think that, that we really need to come together and we need to be compassionate and we need to, I feel so socially responsible. You know, I, I, I went on lockdown way before our city and region did because just watching the news unfold, I felt less worried about me getting sick and more just the social responsibility of it all. I really care about the world and the people. And I, and I felt like we need to do our part. And if my part is staying home or my part is wearing a mask, I will do that. Um, And just thinking much less about myself and my age or my health, uh, you know, that's one thing. That's fine. That's great that I'm not in a, in a high risk group, but I am concerned for those other high risk groups. I think as this continues to unfold, as we're seeing the meatpacking plants struggle, as we're seeing more and more nursing homes, it's going to be inevitable that everyone will be affected. So even people who are currently dismissive or resistant to what's happening are going to end up knowing someone or losing someone. And I think once that happens, it will be really interesting to see the effects. Um, Grief is hard. I think that people underestimate grief. And 
with grief comes a lot of guilt and anger and sadness and pain. And so I think when more and more people begin to find themselves in the throes of grief, some of their ideas about the world may change. Mm. Well, that is, I think, a fantastic thought and a good one probably to end on. So Claire, thank you so much. We appreciate your time and your insights. And thank you for coming on. This was great. Yeah, this was really fun. Thank you for for, um, holding space for these kinds of conversations, you guys. It's our pleasure. Welcome to the special edition Grooving Session, where Tim and I groove on some ideas and concepts that were inspired by our conversation with Claire. All right, Tim, what did you take away from this? Well, first, I just got to say, that was such a fun conversation, talking about grief with Claire. A fun conversation <laughs> about grief? I think, isn't that a little oxymoronic right there? It, yeah. it, it is totally oxymoronic. But, oh, man, I, she just, it, you know, she's bright and insightful and has lots of really good things to say, um, really powerful ideas. And it was just really fun to laugh about some of the ironic things that were going on in her life and our lives. And I uh, just just really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple things that really stood out, and the first is her theme about uh, uh, about how crisis it does a specific job of generating grief. Like, yeah, like the crisis is the creator of grief, right? And that and that what she went on to say that the grief generates anger, sadness, and pain. Yeah, and this idea that it can come out sideways, right? That it isn't always yeah. the the expression of grief in a typical way, and there's different ways that people are responding to this, and a variety of factors that go into that. Yeah. Well, it, it, we've seen this in psychology for a long time, right? When when the things like uh, anger, sadness, and pain aren't dealt with properly, they they come out in all kinds of goofy ways, right? Yeah. Um, I also like the fact that she talked about we need permission to grieve. Yeah, that was interesting, right? This idea that we as humans feel we need to that we need to get somebody else to say it's okay. Yeah, even that, though the whole world is grieving at once. Right. Right. Well, and and there's this idea that the, the you know, there's guilt that's prevalent across the entire status of stratus of of things, right? Because right. Hey, I might still have my job and others don't. I, you know, I'm healthy and others aren't. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why we have a guilt which lends itself into, you know, grieving and and being, you know, is it okay to feel good when there's so many people who aren't? And right, right. There's a big piece of that and like like a resource guilt, not just survivor guilt. But but like a like a resource guilt, right? Like um, th- this is a, it, it poses a particular challenge for us when we're doing. You know, some people just aren't suffering at all, right? Through this, just zero. Some right? people are thriving in this. Their business is better than it's ever been. You know, they're closer to their family. They're not feeling any of the effects yeah. of this, and others are being devastated by this. Their family members are dying. They're losing their jobs. There's all of this. And so, this idea that you can have compassion for those people, but also be really grateful for your own situation, this kind of contradictory aspect. At the same time. At the same time. It's really hard. Yeah. Um, I also liked how uh, Claire talked about anxiety coming from grief, 
right? That mm-hmm. it, it not only generates, you know, anger, sadness, pain, but it generates anxiety as well, right? And that there's really two kinds. She talked about real and imagined anxiety, <laughs> right? Right? Oh my gosh. Because I mean, ultimately, isn't, isn't reality what we perceive it to be? It is. Well, <laughs> well that leads itself into anticipatory grief, which she talked about too, yeah. right? Just yeah. Grieving of a loss we know or we think is coming. And which is some of that imaginary piece because we don't necessarily know it's coming or we, if we do, it's this an anticipation of things. And it just is so many layers of, of this facet of grief that we have to take into account. Yeah. Yeah. What else, Kurt, what, uh, what, what other elements of, of our discussion struck you? The, the rituals, right? This, this need that we have or the way that we typically use rituals and how they help in coping with grief, particularly when we think about uh, funerals, right? We think about these milestones in our lives uh, that oftentimes we have rituals to help celebrate, but also to help us, you know, overcome and and be okay with and funerals were a big one obviously there's also you know other more mundane milestones such as you talked about going to concerts but there's also <laughs> marriages there's births there's birthdays all yeah. of those are are ritualistic that we aren't really being able to experience in the same way that we have in the past and that has an impact yeah i, I grew up in the roman catholic church and i think that uh Organized religions typically have done a really good job of developing rituals to help the human condition move through these transitional times. Uh, not that we would want to think about a concert as a ritual, but <laughs> I, I might I might be overstepping there. But there is something that is uh, sort of natural about having people come together in a musical setting, I think. And we're missing out on that. But maybe more importantly, when you like you talked about, you know, weddings and funerals, it's really not cool to just be missing those things. Yeah. It's really it's really hard on us, right? When we don't have an opportunity to to memorialize, you know, that's just central to the human condition. Right. Or, or to celebrate. Yeah. So in this time uh, right now where it's, it's graduation time and we're seeing people who are missing this demarcation of moving from high school or, or graduating college and moving on to that next chapter in their lives. And, you know, we're coming up with creative ways to try to do it. The, the, the television show that was on this past weekend that LeBron James put on, you know, and had Barack Obama and, and other dignitaries talking, but it was like, it's not really a graduation. We're all kind of celebrating graduating at home uh, and we're not getting together in order to be able to do that. And it's hard. It's hard on us. It is hard. It is. And and as Claire said, that, that is a part, that's one of the things that generates grief. Right. So uh, I thought it was really interesting. She, she talked to some tips, right? So, so what are those, what are those tips, Tim? Uh, She, I thought it was great that she started with the limiting information intake. (laughs) You know, right? Right. Like, like just cut down on your screen time. Right. Just stop with the social comparison. Stop right. with, with trying to adhere to some kind of uh, magical social norms that aren't really happening. You know, right. allow yourself to, to get away from that and just kind of live with yourself and your own feelings and your own family. Right. And, and listen to podcasts instead, you know, particularly <laughs> podcasts that are talking about behavioral science that can might maybe help you in, in the situation, trying situation. I think that's what, that was an, an implied thing that she of course. was saying. There. Okay. Yeah. In fact, what didn't she imply, listen to 
to the Behavioral Grooves podcast. I believe so. I believe that was one of them. And to tell your friends about uh, oh, they yeah. should listen to, yeah. to Behavioral yeah. Grooves. That was all well. implied in, in in Limit Your Screen Time. Because right? it is. You know, the other piece is she said, ask for support, your friends and family, or, you know, go out to, to Behavioral Grooves to get that support uh, that you could do. <laughs> So, oh man, she's going to just tar and feather us. <laughs> we're sorry, Claire. We're, but, we're, we're shamelessly promoting ourselves in this. Such a real, actual thing. But her third, her third tip was something that that I thought struck you particularly positively, yeah, right? Yeah, this this meditation practice, right? This mindfulness, this idea that sometimes we aren't good at getting out of our own head, and that's what mindfulness and and meditation can help us do, help us understand that these thoughts that we have aren't controlling us, that we actually can control those thoughts and we can, they're going to come into our brain. They're going to, you know, take over, but we can dismiss them. We can say, oh, okay, I see you thought you're there. Okay, thank you. And now I'm going to let you go and you can go somewhere else and I don't have to ruminate on you. And that I think is a really big piece that if we can help anybody from this perspective of being able to just get out of their own head sometimes uh, can be very powerful in this. Thank you for listening to the special episode of Behavior Grooves. We hope that you found it interesting and insightful. If you liked it, please let others know. We think that the topic is important and maybe we can help in educating people about how behavioral science can help us all out in this current craziness that we are going through. Also, please let us know if you have any thoughts or ideas that would be helpful or that we could share. You can reach us through the Connect tab on the Behavior Grooves website at www.behavioralgrooves.com or through Twitter. I am at T. Houlihan and Kurt is at what motivates. We really do love hearing from you, and this topic is one that spurs lots of emotions and thought. As part of our mission, we want to expand and inform the community of people who think about positively applying behavioral science to life. One way that happens is through leaving reviews. If you think this podcast is beneficial and should grow, we would really appreciate to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast server you use. It only takes a few minutes and goes a long way to boost us in the algorithms that are used to generate search results. Also, please check out the show notes. We are linking to a number of resources articles, podcasts, newsletters that we've vetted to bring good facts and ideas around COVID-19 and the coronavirus, its impact and ways that we can help slow down the spread. There is a lot of information that's being pushed out to everyone each day, and we are weeding through it to find good stuff so that you don't have to. We truly appreciate you listening. Now go out and wash your hands.